We're reading Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men travelling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord. He answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles on their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who caused havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. 
He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. This is God's word. Evening, everybody. My name's Phil. I'm the Associate Minister, and it's lovely to have you here. As usual, uh, post-church weekend, if the person next to you is getting a little bit uh, bleary-eyed, you have my permission to give them a, a sharp prod. It's a biblical thing. Um, Book of Acts talks about um, the Lord using goads to prod his people, um, and we should uh, copy it. Anyway, uh, <laughs> only those who are falling asleep. Let's, uh, let's pray, and um, I don't think we will fall asleep in this passage, but uh, let's get going. Our Father God, we thank you that the same Lord Jesus who exploded into the life of Paul and turned him round is here tonight. Father God, please, by your spirit, would you work with equal power in us for our good and for your glory. Amen. Okay, what's the most significant life-changing event to have happened to you in all your years that you've been on earth? I guess for some, maybe it's uh, getting married. Maybe it's a divorce, yours or parents'. Maybe it's the arrival of your first child, if you've got kids. Perhaps a battle with cancer or some other very serious illness. Death of a loved one. Securing a place at at university or a particular job. It would be different for all of us. But there are these events in life that are so big that it feels kind of BC and AD, that life is very much divided into what things were like before that happened and afterwards. I want to tell you that if you're a Christian, as big as those things might be, nothing, nothing is as significant as the moment when you put your trust in Jesus Christ. That is the most radical, the most revolutionary, the most transformative thing that can happen to anybody. And we see it illustrated here in perhaps the most dramatic and famous conversion account in all of history. Even in a secular culture, we talk about a Damascus Road conversion after this account in Acts 9. And as we look at the conversion of Saul, Paul, it's the same person, just a different language, really. He seems to have had a Hebrew and a Greek name. But what we see is that the power of Jesus is there to bring radical, revolutionary transformation in the lives of individuals. And as I say, that same Jesus is here today. Now, I think that makes for a wonderful message when you look out. Uh, Those of us here who are Christians, we long for other people to come to know Jesus Christ, but we also feel a little bit intimidated often to tell people about Jesus because we're used to uh, getting tongue-tied when we have opportunities or, or not feeling confident about the arguments and And we can doubt whether actually anybody really will become a Christian, except for, you know, perhaps some very feeble-minded person. Acts 9 will remind us of God's power. It's a wonderful message when you look out. It's also a wonderful message when you look inside. When, as all of us do, we wonder whether we can ever really change from some of the shame-inducing things 
that are kicking around in the murky depths of our heart, in those hidden recesses, and we just despair that we could ever be changed. Where here we will see the most radical change. But wonderfully, we'll find that same power is available to you and me today. Now, the the pattern of what happens here is basically standard and true for all Christians. But some of the details of how how that pattern works out in the life of Paul are extraordinary, to give the word its literal meaning. So some of the, the specific details are unique. They're not things that we should expect to see repeated. Now, we know that because when you read the rest of the New Testament, you never again hear of someone having literal scales fall off their eyes. And you know that too, because when Paul, Saul, goes out um, to spread the good news of Jesus, he never prays, Lord, would you appear in miraculous visions, because that's how you worked with me? No, he recognizes that that was a, a completely unique thing for him as the final apostle. And so what he prays for, and what he does is, look, pray for me as I try to use words to tell people about Jesus. That's what he commanded us to do in Acts 1.8. So some of the details are unique, but the pattern, as we'll see, is standard for all of us. Let's, uh, let's work our way through. Um, we'll see three points. The man he was, the man he met, and the man he became. Firstly, the man he was, persecuting Jesus' followers. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that is Christians, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now, this is not the first time that we've met Saul. If you've been here for the last few weeks, you'll remember back in chapter 7 was his first mention. Luke recorded the trial of the first Christian martyr. Stephen, one of the young leaders in the church, is hauled before the religious and political authorities because he's been preaching that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament and we should worship him now. And his trial ended in pretty chaotic fashion. If you turn back to the end of chapter 7, we'll pick it up at 7.57. At this, they, that's the, the authorities, covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirits. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep and Paul and Saul approved of them killing him. So the religious leaders at the end of the trial are so enraged by Stephen's declaration that Jesus is the Lord that they, they fall on him. Just in, it's a, it turns into a lynch mob. This is the highest court in the land and it turns into a savage lynch mob. They drag him out of the city and begin to fling rocks at his head. And because they want to they kill the man, they, they take off their coats they, you know, so they can throw properly and so they don't get blood spatter all over them and ruin their nice outfits. And they lay those coats at the feet of the man who is overseeing the whole thing and approving of it. This young Pharisee named Saul. And the lynching of this one man, Stephen, quickly spills over into a a wild persecution of all the Christians in Jerusalem. So it carries um, on in Acts 8. On that day, great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. 
Now that word destroy in verse 3 is used of an, a wild animal attack. There is a, a real bestial, savage rage about Paul's attempt to destroy this heretical cult as he sees it. And murder is still on Saul's mind at the beginning of chapter 9. Not content with driving the Christians out of Jerusalem, he obtains authorization to go north to Damascus so that he can track down those who fled Jerusalem and drag them back in chains and finish them off there. It is hard to imagine anyone less open to the gospel than Saul. I mean, imagine if you worked uh, with Saul at the temple can you imagine on Monday morning, hi Saul, um, good weekend. Look, uh, we've got this um, uh, a guest event at church. I was just wondering if you fancied coming along. No? I'm busy, too busy throwing rocks at people. Okay, um, it's fine. Maybe the carol service later in the year? I mean, you'd have to be mad. You don't ask a man like that. You end up in prison or killed. But actually beneath the surface, all is not as it seems with Saul. And we know this from his own lips. Now, his conversion is so important in the book of Acts that it's repeated three times, Acts 9, and then twice when he's on trial towards the end of the book, he repeats the events of his conversion. And on one of those occasions, in Acts 26, as he's talking to a King Agrippa, he says something very interesting. He tells us that Jesus said more than just, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He says in Acts 26.14 that Jesus said to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Sharp pointy stick. Feel free to use them. A goad, a sharp pointy stick. It's what you use if you're a farmer and there is an animal reluctant to go where you want it to. So you jab it, you prod it with the goad. So it'll go where it doesn't want to go because it hurts. So Jesus Jesus said to Saul, when he met him in that vision on the Damascus road, Saul, I've been prodding you for a long time now. When are you going to finally submit? How long are you going to keep resisting? On the surface, Saul is a single-minded fanatic. A man with a murderous hatred whose goal in life is to destroy this heretical cult that worships a man, Jesus. And he's fueled by an utter certainty, a cast iron certainty that there is no way Jesus can be the Messiah. No way at all. But it's so often the case that fanaticism is a mask for inner doubt and turmoil. And under the surface, Saul has been churned up. He has been prodded again and again and again. And inside, there are all sorts of doubts. It's no surprise really. I mean, actually, it is entirely possible. We're not told, but it is entirely possible that he would have heard Jesus teach in the temple courts. Similar age. Saul was obviously around Jerusalem. It would seem odd that he wouldn't have gone to see what this fuss was about. I wonder if, he, if Jesus looked at him as he taught in the temple courts at some point. What we know for certain is he did hear and he did see Stephen. He heard Stephen teach how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament and the one who gives access to God. He saw Stephen with hope 
and forgiveness and grace be stoned to death and yet forgive those who did it? As he destroyed the earthly lives of the Christians in his great persecution, he saw eternal joy and peace and an assurance of God's forgiveness, things he longed for and knew he didn't have. So the Damascus Road, this dramatic moment when the risen Lord Jesus rips open the fabric of creation and appears to Saul in a blinding vision. It's not the first time that Jesus has been on his case. So don't write anyone off as the first thing to say. Who knows what God might have been doing? Don't write off the atheist, scientist, Don't write off the hardline Muslim imam. Don't write off the gay rights campaigner. Don't write off the wealthy secular hedonist. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace. If Saul, if Saul can fall on his knees before Jesus, then anyone can. The history of the church is littered with Saul's. Unlikely converts who demonstrate God can save anyone. That's the first thing I think we learn here as we look at the man Saul was, is don't write off anyone. If this man can end the chapter preaching Jesus, don't write off anyone. I think a less obvious implication is be loving. What? I can't see that in the text. Well, no, but it is an implication Let me put it this way. I was at a meeting uh, this week with some people who can be pretty aggressive and unpleasant towards Bible-believing Christians. It wasn't a staff meeting here, don't worry. um, uh, And it uh, it was tempting at this meeting to go a little bit further than just being courageous and standing up for the gospel and to tip over into being pretty hard and unkind. I mean, after all, these people, some of them, are enemies of the gospel. Let's be honest. But it occurred to me as I was working on Acts 9... If Saul can be converted, then so can anyone. And so we must never engage, whether in person or online, in a way that we'd be ashamed of if in a year's time that person came in here, having been converted, and stood next to us as we took communion. Be courageous, stand up for the truth, say blunt things when you need to, but be kind and loving. Because who knows what God might do? And who knows who might be converted? The man he met. And the man he was, uh, persecuting Jesus' followers. So what explains the revolutionary change? Well, very simply, Sunday school answer, he met Jesus. Verse 3. Um, so, chapter 9, verse 3. As he neared Damascus in his journey... Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what to do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. (laughs) Even as he asked the question, who are you, Lord? He must have known the answer. Can you imagine the shock and inner turmoil 
as he realizes. He's not been protecting the honor of God from wicked heretics. He is the heretic. And he's been destroying God's people. Must have hit him like a car crash. And worse still, he hasn't only been persecuting God's people. Jesus asks, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Jesus so closely identifies with his people that to attack one of Jesus' people is to attack Jesus. Now those words have been the most sensational comfort to mistreated Christians down the years. And I'd be surprised if there aren't some here tonight for whom those aren't very, very sweet words. But what horror and dread they must have stirred in Saul. And so groping in the darkness, rather than riding in power to Damascus, he stumbles on someone's arm and he fasts for three days, we're told. It's no surprise, fasting in the Old Testament goes with contrition and brokenness for sin and earnest, desperate seeking after God's will and guidance. No wonder he fasts and prays. And three days after uh, Paul's startling experience, another man in Damascus has a rather unsettling encounter with God. Verse 10, in Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. And then, quite understandably, speaking to the sovereign Lord who knows all things, Ananias says, uh, Lord, don't you, uh, there's something you obviously don't know. (laughs) Ananias, no, no, no. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. It never goes well to answer back to God like that, does it? But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Martin Luther King, go and visit the house of the head of the KKK. This is madness. But eventually Ananias obeys and comes trembling into Saul's house. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said... Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me to you so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul will never be the same again. Now, there is a question about at what point does Saul become a Christian? Uh, Is it when he encounters Jesus on the Damascus road, or is it at this moment when the scales fall from his eyes and the Spirit enters him? It's hard to be sure. And I guess, actually, that's true for many of us, especially those who are raised in Christian families. We're not quite sure when we became Christians. It doesn't matter. The key thing is that we are converted. And the heart of conversion is a personal encounter with Jesus. Let me say this very clearly. You cannot become a Christian by going through a ritual like baptism, just by doing that. You can't become a Christian by diligently trying to observe all the rules of the Bible and follow the example of Jesus. And the heart of conversion is not experiencing something profound inside you during a church service. All those things 
may be involved in various ways at different points. But none makes for a genuine conversion. The essential feature of a genuine conversion is a personal encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean, though? Because the Bible makes it very clear that it is not normal. It's exceptionally abnormal to have a vision of the Lord Jesus like that. You just don't see that in the New Testament. Paul is exceptional. So what does it mean for us to have a personal encounter with the Lord Jesus? Well, for us, it is in his word that we meet Jesus. It's why Paul proclaims the word about Jesus as he travels. But we meet him as we encounter that word personally, as we receive those blessings personally. It means as I hear the message of the gospel that Jesus died for sins, I find myself believing that he died for my sins. I find myself believing that he is my saviour, my Lord. That I believe the resurrection wasn't just Jesus rising to life. It was rising to give me life. That I don't just believe there is a Holy Spirit, but I believe he has come to live in me. That's what it means. The man he met was the sovereign Lord Jesus, and you can meet him too. Jesus was the word who became flesh, and through his word, you can meet him. And when you read the Bible, you encounter him with all his power to save, to transform, to give you new life. And then let's see what happens. The man he became one who proclaims Jesus. Now again, there are some soul specifics to what happens next. Um, for instance, it is not normal within two days of becoming a Christian to go out and have debates with religious leaders. That's not normal behavior, but Paul was not a normal man in many ways. But the basic principle that we'll see is that his life was radically changed. So chapter 9, verse 19 Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't this the man who caused havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing he was really a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord, and the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he'd preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He then talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. And so he heads off up to the coast. Now, geography em emphasizes the change here. Geography is always important in Acts. And Galatians 2 tells us there's actually a three-year gap between Saul leaving Damascus and coming to Jerusalem. But Luke compresses it to make a point. At the beginning of chapter 9, Saul heads north from Jerusalem to Damascus to persecute Jesus' followers. 
At the end, Saul travels south from Damascus to Jerusalem to preach Jesus and suffer persecution. See, the Bible makes it clear that when you put your trust in Jesus, it's not just a change of belief takes place or a change of understanding or religious affiliation. It's much more radical. It is a 180 degree change of life. You go in completely the opposite direction. You see how radical this is when you look at some of the the ways that the Bible speaks about about this transformation. So um, here you go. Uh, Firstly, in Ezekiel, it's a new heart. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees. It's a new birth. 1 Peter 1, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a new life. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. And so most radically of all, 2 Corinthians, it's a new creation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. If you've put your trust in Jesus, you are completely different. You have been radically transformed. And you cannot be radically transformed at the core of your being and then stay the same in how you live your life. Inner transformation affects all of life. You see that with with Saul. Everything changes. And the same actually should be true with us. Your attitudes and your actions have to reflect that. If your heart has been changed, if you've become a new person, filled with the Spirit, then what you do with your hands and your feet and your lips and your eyes has to change. It changes how you spend your money and your time. It changes how you treat people, especially those who annoy you or have nothing to offer you. It changes how you relate to your sexuality and your career how you think about the future, what you fear and what you love. Everything changes. Now, the Bible's term for this is repentance, which means to change your mind and change direction. You're going one way and you change the way you think about God and you start going completely the opposite way as you follow Jesus. And you can think of it, uh, I think, most simply as like a train journey. If the way you live your life, your attitude and your actions are, uh, are like a train which is fundamentally heading away from God, going this way, then what does it mean to be converted, to, to be transformed and to repent? It doesn't mean that, well, I stay on the same train, but I feel really bad about myself and I confess my sins and I cry over the fact that I'm heading away from God. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that uh, I stay on the same train, but I, I now try to do some really good things to make up for the fact that uh, I keep doing all this bad stuff away from God. It doesn't mean that I, oh, I feel really bad about being on this life journey away from God, so I, I, I get off the train every now and then and wait on the platform for a bit and then get on another train heading in the same direction away from God. Repentance means I get off the train... I walk over the bridge, change platforms, and I get on a train going the other way. I don't become perfect, but the fundamental direction of my life changes. Fundamentally now, I'm living for Jesus, not for me. Genuine conversion doesn't mean you never sin again, but it means the fundamental direction of your life changes, as you see with Saul here. 
But if that feels crushing, when you think, I don't feel like I have changed. And when I do try, I don't seem very good at it. Well, don't miss the great encouragement of Acts 9. It's Jesus who changes Saul. Jesus is the one who provides the power for repentance. The message of the gospel is not trust in Jesus for forgiveness and then, well, you better try really hard to follow him and sort your life out. It's trust in Jesus for forgiveness and then trust in Jesus for transformation. So press into your relationship with him. He alone can transform you. Know him better in his word. Dig deep into that relationship and find that power because he has the power to turn persecutors into preachers to turn the greedy into the generous, the self-obsessed into the loving and compassionate, the proud into the humble, the grumbling discontents into the joyful grateful. And this Jesus is still at work today. Saul is not just something for the Bible. I've seen it in the frankly miraculous and in the mundane and both are equally important I remember uh, going to Latin America a number of years ago and one of the things that um, we did on this uh, little summer project team was help a guy called Daniel who um, was building an extension to a compound he used to take prisoners um, who were still in prison but he was able to take them out for for two weeks at a time and uh, try to help rehabilitate them he was able to do that throughout Argentina extraordinarily I mean it was it was nuts. He basically would get these people and then would, okay, what would you like to do for the two weeks? You've got to help run the place. So some of them would find actually gardening they'd never done and they quite liked and they'd help grow the food. Others would get involved in the cooking. Uh, some would get involved in the maintenance. He had one guy the week before we were there who just wasn't interested in doing anything and just, and he said, well, what are you in prison for? He said, oh, I killed my family. How? With an ax. Great, you can chop wood. Actually, I mean, the guy was absolutely insane. And, uh, but how was it that he ended up um, with access, with prisoners coming every couple of weeks? Well, he had been in the Argentinian secret police. And his job in the 1970s was, was to track down dangerous political subversives, people who liked things like democracy, and to torture them for their contacts and then disappear them. But he started to take his work home, was his phrase. And he was an absolutely hate-filled, nasty man. But uh, he was put in prison, and um, he was sharing a cell at one point with an illiterate Satanist. It sounds like the start of a very bad joke. But this, uh, this illiterate Satanist had a Bible and said, I can't read it, but there's stuff about the devil in here. Read it to me. And as he read through the Bible, he was, well, he met Jesus. Not in a strange vision, but in the word of God, and was blown away, became a Christian, and was so dramatically transformed that eventually he was given parole, released, and then was encouraged to set up this center to introduce others to this transforming power. And I remember um, uh, I, uh, they, they thought I'd broken my, my leg when we were playing football, and so he had to take me to hospital. And as we were going along, it was raining, and the, the bus stopped at a bus stop, and an old lady got off, and I saw him shake his head. I said, What's the matter? He said, well, oh, there's a big puddle at the bus stop. If he'd just pulled up three yards further, she wouldn't have got her feet wet. You know, Here is a man who spent his life working out how to torture and destroy people, now concerned about people getting their feet wet. Totally transformed. But I've also seen it just in the mundane. I remember doing a Christianity Explored course here at church years ago when I was an intern, and there was a girl on it who 
Uh, none of it just made any sense to her. It really was like she had scales on her eyes. You'd look at the Bible, very intelligent person. It's, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So how does God feel about the world? No idea. I think it's, uh, he hates everybody, doesn't he? You know? It was just, it, it was like she couldn't make sense of the Bible. Very intelligent. And when, and when we got on to, when she asked questions about what does the, the Bible say about how people should live, especially in, in the area of sexual ethics, was appalled at what the Bible's teaching was, appalled at the Christian message. But then uh, one week, after about six, six weeks or so, uh, she, she finally just gave in and put her trust in Jesus. And I remember she came back the next week and suddenly the Bible made sense to her. It just made sense. And living God's way. Yep, she just, she changed. The miraculous, the mundane, but it's all the same. The Lord Jesus revealing himself to people in his word, transforming them so that the scales fall off the eyes and we see him as he is, the Savior and Lord. And we live for him wholeheartedly. That same Jesus is at work in us today. So proclaim the gospel openly if you're a Christian. Trust Jesus can save whoever he wants. And come to him confidently, trusting he can transform even you and me into whatever he wants. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this wonderfully encouraging historical account as we see this man transformed by the same Lord Jesus who is here. Father, we pray, if there are any amongst us who have not yet put our trust in Jesus, would we cry out for salvation and meet him tonight and find his transforming, forgiving, saving power. And Father, please would we leave here tomorrow confident that this Jesus is at work even as we talk about him to our colleagues and friends. For his glory we pray. Amen.